You know the secrets of making friends? They are so simple and easy. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew, Sherlock, episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we are going to be doing a season four prequel. Yes, we're finally doing Sherlock. Finally. And those of you who have followed us over from Mr. Robot and Westworld, thank you for being loyal Clatcher family. And those of you who are new, we welcome you here and we hope that you uh, stay for the long no, the short ride. <laughs> the Sherlock is only three episodes long. And just want to let you know that our prequel is a little different than our normal episode reviews. It's going to be more informative. We're just going to do kind of like a, a catch up and we're not going to get too detailed. Yes, because there is a lot of information. This is probably going to be longer. We want to give you all the background, just talk about the main points of what happened in seasons one through three and then get us prepared for season four. After that, we'll do episode reviews much like we do with our other shows, where we break them down scene by scene, talk about what we think about the acting, the characters. But before we even start on this BBC version of Sherlock, Mm -hmm. I think it would be unfair not to talk about the fact that there is a long history of Sherlock Holmes' background. So that could take us all day, but just to give you the finer points, obviously Sherlock Holmes is a fictional private detective. The character was originally created by British author Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And this character, Holmes, is known for his proficiency with observation, forensic science, logical reasoning. We're going to talk about all of that. And he employs it when he investigates his cases with a wide variety of clients, including Scotland Yard. So how did this start out? Do you know where Sherlock goes back to originally? Uh, Conan Doyle's books. Yes. But can you imagine what year? Uh... I'm sure it goes back like recliners. <laughs> Way back. I think most people would say the 1900s. It actually first appeared in print in 1887. Wow. With a study in Scarlet. The popularity became huge. It was the short stories that you're talking about, the first series that appeared in the Strand magazine, beginning with a scandal in Bohemia in 1891, and then additional tales appeared up until 1927, eventually totaling four novels and 56 short stories. They were all set in the Victorian or Edwardian periods between about 1880 and 1914, and most of them are actually narrated by Dr. Watson. You don't actually get the point of view of Sherlock Holmes. That kind of makes sense because in the show, everyone else is getting the story of Sherlock Holmes reading Dr. Watson's blog. Yes, where he tells about each tale. So he's narrating it to the people. Actually, we're going to talk about that later because they do have a Watson's blog online. A what? Watson? <laughs> Dr. Watson, where it looks just like the show. He's writing about each case. I gather that it's no longer active, but you can still go back and read about all the old cases that are up there. So Conan Doyle repeatedly said that Holmes was inspired by a real-life figure, Joseph Bell, who was a surgeon of the Royal Infirmary, that Doyle met in 1877 and had worked for as a clerk. Like Holmes, Bell was noted for drawing broad conclusions from small observations. However, he later later wrote to Doyle, you are yourself Sherlock Holmes and you well know it. So, meaning he really thought it was autobiographical. 
And Guinness World Records has listed Holmes as being the most portrayed movie character, with more than 70 actors playing that part in over 200 films. Wow. So we won't go all the way back to the beginning. We'll just talk about the popular stuff that's been more recent. Obviously, you remember the 2009 film with Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law. Of course. I hear whispers that there's a new one coming out. Yes, you stole my thunder. Oh, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. I hope it's better than the second one. Yeah, I really wasn't a fan. I loved the first one. Yeah, I was thinking maybe I didn't like the second one. Okay, well, let's back it up. Back it up. <laughs> we watched that Sherlock. Mm-hmm. And we were like, this is the best Sherlock ever. This yes. is the best one we've ever watched. Robert Downey Jr. is hands down the best. Then, like a year later, we got into, because it was on Netflix. Well, I got into Sherlock. And then I, made, I watched the whole season that made you watch it. The BBC version. Yeah. Yep. And then we got hooked. But then season or episode two, movie two mm-hmm. came out with Robert Downey Jr. And I didn't like it. And I was wondering, I thought maybe it's because I'm now jaded because I love Benedict Cumberbatch so much that it just wasn't good for me. But that was so long ago. I've seen the first one again and I love the first the one. First so one it's definitely the up. writing just wasn't as good. Yeah, it was... <sighs> The plot line was definitely different. Robert Downey Jr. actually won a Golden Globe Award, and I think it was for the first film. Yeah. The sequel came out in 2011. It's Game of Shadows that we're talking about. And yeah, I really felt that one struggled a bit. But like you said, as of this past May, they said the script was ready for the third film, and they were set to start shooting before the end of this year, 2016, that we're just closing out. I think Robbie D. I call him Robbie D. Because <laughs> you guys are buds. Yeah. I think he gets like $20 million every movie he does now. I would not be surprised. He's one of my favorite. He's awesome. And he does an amazing job as Sherlock. He does an amazing job in everything he does. Mm-hmm. But I still love Benedict Cumberbatch so much more. And I got to tell you, Martin Freeman is the best Watson. Well, that's what makes it for me, I think, is the combination of the two of them. Because yeah. Robert Downey plays a great Sherlock, but it was always really more about the relationship together and how mm-hmm. they play off of each other. And these two are just amazing together. Yeah, let's go back to other renditions for a second, though. In September 2012, Elementary premiered on CBS. And that was a series, again, set in contemporary mm-hmm. New York this time, featuring Johnny Lee Miller as Sherlock and Lucy Liu as the female, Dr. Joan Watson. Yes. And I never actually watched that one. I wanted to. And then there's so many shows out there that uh, we just never got around to it. I mean, we just started watching another new show. I won't get into it right mm-hmm. now. That'll it's be our be bonus cast. Potential but... podcast news. Yes. But uh, the guy who plays Watson, what's his name? In real life, Johnny Lee Miller. He was the one in Hackers with Angelina Jolie way back in the day. Mm, yes. I loved that movie. I've watched it now. It doesn't hold up. But it was good. It was a fun movie. So I do want to see that. I'm intrigued. Yeah, eventually. And then this one I didn't even know about. I, I feel bad saying that. There's a 2015 film, Mr. Holmes, starring Ian McKellen as a retired Sherlock, living in Sussex in 1947 and grappling with a case of an unsolved mystery involving a beautiful woman. It's a movie or a show? It was a movie. Oh, okay. This one, yeah. That makes sense. And finally, there's been appearances by Holmes in several video games, including The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Hmm. Holmes, a series of seven titles. There's a long and illustrious history where this comes from. I'm sure we could do like 50 podcasts about it. 
But just talking about Sherlock that we're going to be reviewing, the BBC version, they tried to do something a little bit different. So this version is created by Mark Gaddis and Stephen Moffat. Same peeps from Doctor Who. Yes. Written by the two of them as well as Stephen Thompson. And they were both Sherlock fans. And they had experience adapting Victorian literature for TV. Moffat worked on Jekyll, the 2007 series, and Gaddis, like you just said, wrote Doctor Who episodes. Mm-hmm. What they were trying to do was keep the iconic details from the original Conan Doyle books. They still have 221B Baker Street, the same names. They encounter the same enemy of Moriarty, but he wanted a different feel to it. He said that the stories were never really about frock coats and gaslight. They're about brilliant detection, dreadful villains, and blood-curdling crimes. And it's about the feel of the interaction between Holmes and Watson. It's about Sherlock's personality, but you have a lot more modern twists in this one. It seems to be taking place in a more present-day London. Oh, yeah. The shooting for this took place in both Cardiff and London, and it was produced by BBC and PBS. Yes, PBS. That's where we see it in the the U.S. Yes. You have to watch it on PBS. You know what would be really fun? If Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson are walking down the street and they're having their clever banter off of each other, Mm -hmm. and then behind the scenes... You see Doctor Who walking by frantically <laughs> with his companion. And just real quick, you know, you don't, they don't like talk to each other. Just behind the scenes, you see it. That would be awesome. Yeah, that would be great. I mean, Gaddis and Moffat could do it. They're a great team together. And it shows the reception has been really good. Just speaking of Series 3, which was the last one, Metacritic gave it an 88%, Rotten Tomatoes a 97 and IMDb a 9.2. And it's also won tons of awards. I'm sure. Just for the Emmys in 2016, they got Best Television Movie for The Abominable Bride, Outstanding Television Movie for the same thing, Outstanding Lead Actor in a Limited Series went to Benedict Cumberbatch, and they also got BAFTAs, a Golden Globe. It really is doing well with critics and fans alike. And you know that they enjoy doing it because they have all blown up as actors since then, and they still come back to do it. And, but that's part of the reason why it takes so long. It takes two years per season, mm. pretty much. And that's because these guys are working a lot. I have a list of Benedict Cumberbatch movies that he's been in and that he's going to be in. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, him and Freeman, they had already achieved a certain level of fame. Of course. Before that, we knew who they were. We recognized them, of course, but they have gotten a lot bigger. And they both worked together in The Hobbit. Yes. Which is pretty cool. I'm sure they didn't see each other, though, because... Benedict was just the voice of Krog. Smog. Smog. <laughs> Same thing, right? Yeah, I wonder. You wouldn't think, I guess, that they would actually be there filming together. Probably not. Benedict Cumberbatch, real quick, he is Khan in the new Jungle Book coming up. Hollaback. Is he really? Yeah. Oh, wow. I don't know if he's voiced or not, but in IMDb, it doesn't say voice. Huh, I wonder what else they could be doing. He's got to be voice. Maybe it's not just voice because he like acted it out. Like had, probably had to do just like the dragon. Oh, okay. Maybe. That makes sense. Well, now that we're on fun facts, I got a couple for you. Sherlock's parents are actually Benedict Cumberbatch's parents yeah. in real life. You Isn't knew that, that awesome? Yes, I did. I didn't know that. That's so cool. Okay, well, how about this one then? Amanda Abington, who plays Mary, and Martin Freeman, who plays Dr. Watson, are real life partners. I did not know that. I wonder if they were partners before or they became... After the show. 
I think it was before. Wow. Which I find interesting. The There doesn't seem to be a ton of romantic chemistry between them, but this could just be how they're directed to act in the show. Right. There's chemistry in the sense that they act very well together mm-hmm. and it's a dynamic relationship. There is so much up and down that I'm assuming that's a lot of direction on how to interact with each other. There's one more tie-in. Mark Gaddis's husband in real life is one of the actors in the episode The Reichenbach Fall. The what? I think <laughs> The Reichenbach, that's the title of one of the episodes. I think he plays a barista. Oh, cool. Possibly. I, I know that he's in there somewhere. They also have some ties to cool historical things. When they talk about the Mind Palace, mm-hmm. I always wondered if that was a real thing or not. I've seen a show since where they supposedly debunked it and said that that kind of memory isn't real, that people can't actually have a photographic memory and store things. Oh, that's the show I just told you, uh, showed you. Is it? We talked about it in our Patreon-exclusive bonus episode. Okay, yes. That uh, White Rabbit show with the people from Mythbusters. Right. But I have heard of the exercise of making your own mind palace, quote-unquote. It doesn't work just like the show, but basically you can, because we visually remember better, so mm-hmm. you can remember a particular drawer that looks differently, and you put that info in there, and that'll help you so you're like... Oh, what's that guy's name? And you close your eyes, you can open that drawer, and it's more likely to come out. Yes, and I can't imagine this is completely false, because supposedly this is a method of aiding memory that dates back to ancient Rome. They've been using this for a long time. Of course, Sherlock is, well, he doesn't really say it. In the older series, he says the game is on a lot. He sort of alludes to that. Right. In this series, that comes from the famous saying, the game is afoot. From Shakespeare's Henry V. That's right. I think they used it twice. That's it. Okay. And one last one. We have to look for this. Supposedly, there are certain letters in the closing titles of each episode that are highlighted in red, and these spell out a word that somehow relates to that episode. Oh. So now I'm intrigued to go back and look. Clatchers, if you find it, let us know. Yeah, it's a fun mystery. I hope they'll continue that with Series 4. It might sound strange to you that I keep saying that. They write it up as series instead of season. Mm-hmm. And That's right. And for those of you who have watched, you will know that it's structured differently. There's three episodes each series, and each episode is about, what, an hour and a half long? Something like that. It's like a mini movie. I love it. Yeah. I don't know how we're going to do this podcast. Because I'm going to want to watch it like three times before we podcast. And an it. hour and a half is a lot to talk about. Even our 50-minute shows that we do wind up going Two an hours. hour and a half for yeah. podcasting. Before we get into the main plot points of series one through three, we're going to go over the major characters in all of the series. I'm sure that you are familiar with them, but if you are relatively new to Sherlock, a refresher might be helpful. Of course, we're going to start out with Sherlock Holmes, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, the brilliant, aloof detective who's almost entirely lacking in social graces and has set himself up as the world's only consulting detective in modern-day London. Now, this could be an annoying trait as a main character, but the way Dr. John Watson plays off of it makes it hilarious. Yes, And even Benedict Cumberbatch portrays it in a way that I haven't seen done before. Yeah. They always pull off the somewhat charming, even while they're being obnoxious, but he is so ignorant 
to the fact that he's being rude. Right, to his own behavior. There, there's almost a naivete to him where he just doesn't get it. There's something, what is it about you and I that love characters like that? We loved Dr. House, mm-hmm. and he was very similar to that. Not as good, but there's something about these strong characters. Maybe we're lacking it. In totally brilliant, a little insane. Yeah. Well, he has the ability, you know what it is, to just say what he wants whenever he wants to with zero filter. And, and yet, and pe- zero backlash. People still like him. Mm-hmm. They can't help themselves. They almost hate to like him. But it reminds me of the episode where John asks him to be his best man. And he's telling this story at the wedding about the moment he asks and all the things that he was saying to him. (laughs) And you see the flashback to him just sitting there, not saying a word for about five minutes because he was only thinking it all in his head. And he's going through, wait a second, I'm actually your best friend and you want me to be your best man. Yeah, the normal conversation and it's not actually happening. He's just staring at him. He's just sitting there. Staring at Watson. Well, we geeked out. So Dr. John Watson, let's talk about him. He's brave, resourceful, practical, mm. previously served in ro- the Royal Army Medical Corps. Yeah. Shattered by services in Afghanistan, discovered a new lease on life when he met Sherlock, who infuriates him and is his best friend at the same <laughs> time. Yeah. Which is, that's the balance that we love, the, the metaphorical ball going back and forth. Remember that old game, Atari game? Boop, boop, boop. The way you said it is perfect, though. He is the balance to Sherlock. Mm -hmm. Initially, they seem to be complete opposites in the fact that John is practical. He does think about the day-to-day things and how they're going to have to resolve things, mostly how they're going to interact with people because Sherlock has no social awareness whatsoever. He cannot... (laughs) relate to people. He doesn't understand motivations. He doesn't think they're important. And it takes Watson showing him that that can really be critical to a case and in life. And eventually along the way, Sherlock kind of gets that. Mm -hmm. So I think Watson grounds him in a certain sense. But in the beginning, he also seems to be sort of the dumb character. Sherlock's always putting him down and saying, I don't understand how you don't get this. This is very simple what I'm trying to explain to you. And yet we do see after a while that Watson is very smart in his oh, own yeah. way. He just doesn't talk about it. If Watson wasn't smart, Sherlock would not have any time, any energy, any patience mm. to be around him. And we can see that Sherlock needs Dr. Watson as much as Dr. Watson needs Sherlock. Yes. And it's a good point to say that Watson tries to deny it to other people and to himself for a long time that he needs Sherlock and that he wants to be a part of this. He acts like he's being dragged into it. Mm -hmm. Sherlock never tells him what's going on. He pulls him from one place to the next. But immediately when that's not in his life anymore, he doesn't know what to do with himself. We find out later when he's drawn to Mary Mm -hmm. and you discover that she is not what she seems. All the people in his life rotating in his little orbit are borderline sociopaths and he he needs the excitement, the adventure. There's something to be said, and we won't go too far off on a tangent, to the fact that he did serve in the military and that feeling once you come back that you need a greater purpose. You can't just return to a normal humdrum life. Well, let's talk about that real quick. So episode one, which I've watched a million times and I want to watch it right now just thinking (laughs) about it. Dr. Watson 
is in a cane and he's walking around. He's, he's seeing a psychiatrist and mm-hmm. he's hobbling around. He's very depressed, very serious. Yeah. It's not till he meets Sherlock, which I love the way they had it. They situated them, how they met each other. Yeah. That was brilliant writing. It was not obvious, the writing, like, oh, here, this is where they meet, you know. Mm-hmm. And the way they bounced off each other right away was perfect. It introduced us to what, who John Watson is and who Sherlock is right there. But, sorry, I digress. By the end of that episode, Dr. Watson forgets his cane and is running with Sherlock down the road. Yes. So he felt, going along with what you were just saying, Dr. Watson was crippled after his military service. service with the bored life. And it became a physical... Manifestation. Exactly. And now that he's got it back, he is able to run. And Yeah, I think they might have even said it at some point that he came back with an actual physical injury, but I believe it was to his arm. So they couldn't understand why the pain was coming out in his leg and why he should need a cane. There was no physical reasoning behind that and if you know the background on how PTSD works and when you've been traumatized it's not that it's not real when you say psychosomatic people think oh it's all in your head it's not a real injury it is real it just has no physical cause so the mental and emotional suffering that you're going through manifests physically somehow Uh, it externalizes in a lot of people so perhaps you feel genuine pain in your leg, but there's no actual injury that should correlate with that. Right. And it's not until the emotional wounds start to heal that that will start to go away. And that's exactly what we're seeing with Watson. And like you said, not just his physical injury, but his mood starts to get better. He's excited to go on these cases with him. He's bantering with Sherlock and enjoying it. Episodes later, we see that even though he rolls his eyes, the rude quirks that Sherlock Holmes has, Dr. Watson actually enjoys it. Yeah. And there is a depth over time to their relationship that I'm sure we will speak of. There have been illusions over the years, going back to Arthur Conan Doyle's original stories as to the nature of their relationship together. And this version of the Sherlock goes out of its way to point that out multiple times. Watson says it, that they're not in a relationship together and he was never in love with Sherlock. They have him marrying Mary and, and, and they both are seeing women at certain points. There's joking about it. But you do have to wonder if that is there on some level. Moffat and Gaddis were asked if they were gay and they actually specifically said no they weren't Mm -hmm. but i think it's just a fun thing that they they play off of it i mean even miss hudson thought that dr watson found another man yeah he said he was going to get married That he was moving on yeah and she was like oh she and i think she made a comment about was sherlock crushed when watson was getting married but i think it's it's a lot more complex than that just in my own opinion Mm. it's not about either of them being gay, we do see John falling in love with Mary, having a relationship with her. But there's, on some level, perhaps, you can call it a soulmate, somebody you're meant to be with throughout, throughout life that's, that's not necessarily a romantic partner. Right. But you do fall in love with them on some level and you are truly connected. And I think that 
Sherlock is that person for Watson. And for Sherlock, nobody else in the world understands him or can tolerate him or has actually opened him up to an emotional bond before. And so they have this connection that's different. They have love for each other, without a doubt. I mean, even when Sherlock tries to go on cases with Molly Hooper, (laughs) he keeps calling her John. Yeah. You know, so it's a deeper level, I think, than physical love. I think it's deeper than that. Yeah, and they went over the top to actually spell that out in the wedding episode when Mm -hmm. Sherlock gives that speech, and it runs. I love that speech. Almost the course of the entire episode. It's really long and genuine and heartfelt. His feelings for John, everything he has never said to him, finally opening up about all of it. Yeah. All right, that was a long tangent, but important stuff to talk about how that works into our plot and relationships. We do have more characters. We were kind of dancing around Mary. That's Mary Morstan, played by Amanda Abington. She is a part-time nurse when we first meet her. Little is known of her past. She is surprisingly smart and can understand Sherlock, which is a point they stress very early on. And likewise, Sherlock cannot understand her. From the very beginning, when he first sees her, normally when he evaluates people on that snap judgment, words will come up on the screen. I love the way they do that, by the way. That describe the little clues and how he comes to the deduction of what type of person they are, and hers is just flooded. A million words, all of them have question marks next to them. He cannot read her. So that's an interesting dynamic right off the bat. We find out that she met John following Sherlock's death. We don't really know how the relationship started, but by the time we get there, they're engaged to be married. Or he's proposing to her Yeah. the night of the dinner. And looking back at that episode and, and the episodes following, she is on the ball. First of all, the way she reacts to Sherlock, that night scene after Sherlock shows Dr. Watson that he's still alive, mm-hmm. and they're going through... Dr. Watson punching him a bunch oh, of times. I love that. She's so laid back about it. She's not freaking out about it. And she can she coaxes Dr. Watson to be a part of Sherlock Holmes' life again. Yes. A lot of girlfriends, I think, would have not wanted that because it's taking away from their love. They're together yeah. all the time. Then there is the wedding scene where she was the one that remembered the room number, mm-hmm. all that stuff. And we do find out that she is a spy. Yes. Or spy or a killer or something, I forget. She seemed to have been an assassin. And and we don't really know a ton of the details behind that. It seems as though that's going to be the end of their relationship when John finds out. There's some really rocky times, but I love when they start talking again at the Christmas party at Sherlock's house. And he gets very emotional and forgives her and decides that he wants to start a new life with her. And basically, they were both right. Sherlock and Mary were both right about him. And he has finally come to being aware of it himself, what he's drawn to and what he needs in his life. Yeah, he became aware of it once they told him about it, and then he was in denial for a while. Mm. I have to say Martin Freeman is an amazing actor. I love him. And you will hear me say that an annoyingly amount of times. I have to say, some of the times, here comes some sacrilege, I think he's even better than Benedict Cumberbatch because the character he has to play is more difficult at times because of the emotions he has to struggle with. 
Yeah, but the way Benedict Cumberbatch can give this emotionless character just that little bit of emotion, which makes you tingle, like, holy shit, he's feeling something, Mm -hmm. you know? That's pretty amazing to do. Yes, when he's required to do that. But a lot of times, he is very similar in performance to the next character we're going to talk about, which is his brother. Minecraft Holmes, Mm. played by Mark Gaddis. We all know who Mark is. The man himself. Sherlock's older brother works for the British government, often calls on Sherlock to assist. Uptight, somewhat cold, and brilliant. All right. Works for the British government, I think, is an understatement. (laughs) I think he's way up there. He almost is the British government. And he is ten times smarter than Sherlock. They lead you to believe than any person anywhere. Yeah, well, yeah. That I he's mean, you would think he's literally that, right? the smartest man alive. I love when they're arguing and he's like, uh, he's telling Sherlock how everyone else is boring to you. Can you imagine how I felt? I felt that way with you. You know, I love that. Well, and how about growing up? They always thought that Sherlock was stupid because the only comparison yes. they had was to Mycroft. And by comparison, he wasn't as smart. It wasn't until they met other kids and realized that both of them were on such a different plane than the rest mm-hmm. of the world that they actually both are geniuses. It's just just what level of, of ranking, I guess. I wonder if Sherlock is smarter because he grew up with Minecraft. I don't know. It's an interesting thought because both of their parents, we don't get a lot of exposure to them, but they seem to be fairly normal people. They're very normal. Normal, regular people. Even Dr. Watson was like, those are your parents? (laughs) Not genius sociopaths or anything. I said Minecraft. Sorry, I meant Minecraft. And what what are the odds in a normal environment with, we think, somewhat normal genetics that you're going to wind up with two children Mm -hmm. that have that level? It's crazy. But we're going to talk about their relationship as we go along because it's a very interesting one, the love-hate Need. Oh, yeah. But they need each other, definitely. Yeah. Uh, they love to hate each other. It's part of the game. It's part of the game. Yes, equally. I think you could spend a ton of time analyzing what's behind all that. Maybe Sherlock trying to prove his own intelligence and the fact that he has a thing now yeah. that doesn't have to do with his brother who's in the British government. And, you know, Sherlock can do it without his help. Yeah. But Mycroft is always watching and keeping tabs Always. and making knows, sure that keeping his, tabs his on all of his friends too is okay whoever's in yeah which means love whoever's in sherlock holmes life they're keeping tabs of too especially watson oh yeah when he first gets wind of him oh, yeah oh yeah yeah <laughs> the little test he had to go on yeah that was yeah. great and real quick back to the parents how about the fact that how emotional his parents are yes. and how much love they have to give and emotions. Especially his it's mother. A, it's a contrast. Is it when you get that smart, you lose that ability to have those kind of feelings? Yeah, I think with a lot of genius people, because you are that smart, you feel like you're so different than the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. You can't relate to them. They can't understand you. You're on a totally different plane of being. And so it's, it's very hard to have emotional connections and, and normal social interactions. Let's talk about another character. He doesn't have a lot of screen time, but he's very important to the overall story. I'm speaking of Detective Inspector Lestrade, played by Rupert Graves. He is the best Scotland Yard has to offer, which Sherlock does not think is very good most of the time. He's a Metropolitan Police Service detective. He's world-weary. 
you get that feeling very early on. He's got a dry sense of humor. He's not afraid to risk ridicule by calling in the help of Sherlock because he knows he needs him, even when most other people are trying to deny that. He's not in it often, but I think he's a very pivotal part of the show. Mm-hmm. I love when he's on screen. When Sherlock Holmes was dead and he arrives and surprises <laughs> Inspector Lestrade. His that that was hilarious. Was I love that. Well, and if not for him, Sherlock really wouldn't have a place within solving these crimes. He makes it somewhat legal for him to be working he on takes these all cases. The heat for him. He takes all the yes. heat for him. And he knows that despite the many things he does wrong, and I'm sure millions of infractions that he himself should probably be fired for letting him run amok this way, he will get to the bottom of it. Mm-hmm. And that's why he continues to utilize him. Then we have little character, unknown character named Jim Mariotti, <laughs> played by Andrew Scott, played brilliantly by Andrew Scott. Oh, talk about oh. the actor who wins it for the series. He's the best. I thought the master in Doctor Who was the best villain ever. Hmm. And then... I see Andrew Scott play Professor Moriarty. And I was like, whoa, that's even crazier. They took uh, the genius and the psycho factor way up. Mm. And they still made it believable. He was Sherlock's intellectual equal, Mm. a master criminal who enjoyed playing games with the world and killed himself to discredit Sherlock. Mm -hmm. I mean, even in that pivotal scene before he kills himself, he gets depressed as he's winning that now what am I going to do? You were easy. He doesn't like... I thought this was going to be a challenge. Yeah, the fact that he is winning, because that means that Sherlock really wasn't his intellectual equal, and that frustrates him. And then when he finds out that that's not true, this glee that comes over him, even Mm -hmm. though it means he's going to have to kill himself, he is ecstatic in that moment. And yeah, Andrew Scott, I don't even know what to say about him. He blows... (laughs) Most other actors out of the water. Yeah. Do you think he's dead? On the show? I, it's interesting because we're going to talk about this later. We leave off with finding out he's back. Quote, unquote. But there's many ways for him to be back without actually being back. Mm-hmm. And I think that's more likely. Do you think right now he's just an infection on someone's back <laughs> of his head and then the next episode he'll be uh, like a baby size and then the he'll next episode sacrifice yeah i you know we saw him shoot Potter himself reference. point blank now i know we thought we saw sherlock die but there was a lot of mystery surrounding that the yeah. camera did not pan away we literally saw moriarty put a gun to himself and shoot yeah i don't see how you get out of that one uh, when it's they not were like in, Westworld, where he could have a host no. double. When they were around. when they were in China, first of all, China loves Sherlock, loves, loves, loves. loves oh Sherlock. yeah. They tried to ask him, like, tell us how how did Sherlock really pull that off? Because we never really find out. We find out a version that he lied to Anderson. Yes. And he leaves with the Anderson going, "I knew that wasn't true." Mm-hmm. They didn't tell him. But also, while I'm on China, you know, they love him so much that they've made comic books and animations and changed it just enough where they can't get sued. Really? Actually, China, you can't get sued anyways. Huh. No, I didn't know that, there's though. A, there's Starbucks in China. There's everything that works here is over there, and it's not 
the same company because right. there's no you can't sue China. They don't have the same laws. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I digress again. No, that's fine. We do have to move on though. Next, we have Mrs. Hudson, played by Una Stubbs. She's amazing. <laughs> she is. They describe her as the landlady for Two Twenty One Baker Street. It's so much more than that. She adores her boys. She takes all of the events in stride. She treats them as a mother most of the times. And she's interesting, too, as time goes on. We find out she has a colorful past of her own, which we oh only get goodness. little snippets of. And what does she, she always say? I'm not your, I'm not your maid. Yes. Uh, she is the, excuse this analogy, but she is the butter on the toast for this show. Mm-hmm. She is what's able to, you know, smear the butter across the whole episode. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. Think about it. I can't even explain <laughs> what I mean by that, but think about it. Well, she ties things together. She brings the heart into Baker Street. And yet, it's not as though she is this very simple, kindly old lady as she appears to be. And that's why... I think she works so well with these two. She herself was an exotic dancer at one point. Her husband ran some kind of crime ring. Mm -hmm. (laughs) One quick thing about Mrs. Hudson. She and Sherlock actually knew each other in a previous life. Meaning Una Stubbs and Benedict Cumberbatch. Correct. Cumberbatch has often said that Una Stubbs mothers him on the set of Sherlock. But she has good reason. Stubbs is an acting contemporary of Cumberbatch's mother, Wanda Ventham, who made a surprise appearance in the Empty Hearse episode. As Sherlock's lay Miz loving mother alongside the actor's father, Timothy Carlton, we talked about how they were his actual parents, and used to live around the corner from her when Cumberbatch was a child. So a four-year-old Benedict would often find himself forced to endure hours of boredom as Stubbs and his mother gossiped on park benches or street corners. Stubbs nonetheless found him very polite, a mm-hmm. lovely boy, quote. So there you go. I want to say with every character, one of my favorite parts of this show. Well, you got another fun-loving character next to talk about. Molly Hooper, hmm. played by Louise Brealey. She's a pathologist at St. Bartholomew's Hospital. She's socially awkward, but smart and perceptive about Sherlock, who she is somewhat in love with, that's evident, <laughs> and occasionally assists in cases. Mm-hmm. I love her character. I I can't keep saying that. People are going to just tune out. Uh, I love her character. She's great. Well, every person acting in this show really just brilliantly portrays the character that they're supposed to be doing. And in this case, yes, she's almost like a Sherlock fangirl Mm -hmm. in the beginning. She's so enamored with him. She tries really hard to strike up conversations with him, eventually to tell him how she feels about him. Over time, she becomes a bit jaded. She realizes he can never maybe love anybody, and certainly not her. She tries so hard to move on with her life. By picking up a guy that looks just like him? Yes. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) But way dumber. But our heart hurts for her, and she makes Sherlock, by proxy, seem more lovable. Worthy of affection because she has this affection for him, more human and real to us. And in season three, she kind of found her footing with him. And she even was able to dissect him and put him in his place, kind of. Yes. And once she started doing that, he looked at her more as an equal. Absolutely. And their relationship got a little bit smoother, Mm -hmm. I think, from then on. The last character we're going to talk about is Philip Anderson, played by Jonathan Aris. 
He worked in the forensics department at Scotland Yard, became obsessed with Sherlock's apparent death, which eventually led to his suspension from the force. He is the one who started coming up with all these wild and crazy theories about what could have happened to Sherlock and believed so strongly that he was alive. It's no surprise to anybody that the reason he wanted so badly to believe that is because he felt guilty Mm. for what he thought was his part in bringing about Sherlock's demise and sort of perpetuating these not-so-great ideas about who Sherlock was. I tell you, if we ever go to London... I'm going to force you, we got to go to the Ferris wheel because that's in mm. Sherlock, that's in Doctor Who, and we have to walk by 221B Bakers. Mm. There is actually a real uh, apartment there. I've seen a picture. It's tiny. It's not. But they didn't film it there. Is that correct? They filmed the front. Just the front of the. Yeah. yeah. Let me sprinkle a little bit of a fun fact. Matt Smith wanted to be Watson. So Really? Kind of similar to Benedict Cumberbatch which is why he didn't get it. A week before landing the part of Doctor Who, Matt Smith auditioned to play John Watson. Stephen Moffat decided he was too barmy and that one Sherlock was enough. Martin Freeman, on the other hand, arrived at his audition, having had his wallet stolen on the way and was in such a bad mood it was assumed he wasn't interested. (laughs) The following week, he returned in a better frame of mind, read with Benedict Cumberbatch, and the part was his. I could see, though, that even him coming in like that would make him a good candidate because that's exactly how Watson was in the beginning. You're right. So they saw that side of him, too. I think they probably liked both of those. But going back to Matt Smith for a second, yeah, he's way too Sherlock to ever be Watson. Well, I like that. That should be a (laughs) T-shirt. He's way too Sherlock to ever be Watson. Yeah, that's fun. So, I mean, obviously there are more characters, but these are the reoccurring ones that are important to our storyline and come up episode after episode. Next, we want to go through the highlights of series one through three. Now, there's been a ton of things that happened. This was very difficult to break down into a digestible manner. It's still probably a bit too long, but I'm going to run through it as quick as I can because we can't just say nothing coming in on series four, but... We can't go through it scene by scene, so we'll just give you an overview. Starting out with series one, which was in 2010, and this deals with John Watson meeting Sherlock, they're developing their friendship, and beginning to investigate crimes together. Episode one was a study in pink, where the police investigate the deaths of a series of people who all appear to have committed suicide by taking a poisonous pill. After a series of incidents, we find out the person responsible for the deaths, a taxi cab driver, reveals that his victims took their own lives by playing a game of Russian roulette with two pills, one fatally poisonous, the other safe. Before he dies, the taxi cab driver reveals that Moriarty was his sponsor. So we're set up early in season one with just this vague idea of an arch nemesis Moriarty being out there. That actor is creepy. The taxi cab driver? Yeah. Yeah. Episode 2, The Blind Banker, is where Sherlock is hired by an old friend to investigate a mysterious break-in at a bank in the city. He discovers symbols spray-painted onto an office, starts decoding them. Him and John follow a trail of clues that link the two dead men to a Chinese smuggling ring, who are trying to retrieve a valuable item that one of the dead men stole. Of course, John and Sarah are kidnapped by the criminals, who think that John is Sherlock. Sherlock rescues them, 
And later, the leader of the gang is revealed to be in communication with their superior, identified as M. Yet again, Moriarty. So I'm trying not to, like, I could go on for 20 minutes about every episode. I'm going to abstain and just not do that. Yeah, we'll do it in a second when we're done with series one. The third and final in the first was The Great Game, where Sherlock is commissioned by Mycroft to investigate the suspicious death of a government employee who was working on a top-secret defense project, the Bruce Partington Project. Sherlock is taunted by a criminal who puts his victims into explosive vests. And finally, Sherlock and Moriarty reach a standoff where Jim reveals he was responsible for all of the crimes. This was at the pool. The end of this season, they're at this uh, uh, beautiful pool, and this is actually a real uh, public pool. Okay. And funny enough, this is where Moffat learned how to swim when he was a child. Really? In real life? Yep. Oh, wow. And the following season, which you're about to bring up, Mm -hmm. opens up in this pool again. And they did not film it. You know how a lot of shows and movies will film to see, like the beginning of the the next season? They didn't do that. So they had to go back and they had to redo all the signs and everything and reset it up. Wow. I wonder if they didn't know. They didn't know. Okay. I mean, it was two years later. Sure. We get the idea that season one is just very much about setting the stage that Moriarty is behind all of these crimes that Sherlock is discovering and they're building him up as the big bad guy. And we get the culmination of meeting him, but it's very brief in season one. Season two, which came out in 2012, has some of Sherlock's most famous cases and deals with the battle of wits between him and Moriarty. That starts with episode one, A Scandal in Belgravia, where Mycroft hires Sherlock and John to retrieve compromising photos of a minor royal, which are held on the camera phone of Irene Adler a ruthless and brilliant dominatrix who also trades in classified information and extracts it from her rich and powerful clients. This episode had a different feeling to it. I told you I wasn't going to interject, but I'm doing it. It had a different feel to it, right? Yes. Uh, But it was good. I loved it. And with her unrobing or derobing, it wasn't showing what kind of character she was in the fact that like she'd be so apt to get naked Mm -hmm. it showed what kind of character she was as far as knowing who she was talking to yes she used that to kind of throw sherlock off and kind of make him uncomfortable make him where he oh and also he couldn't read anything on her because there was nothing to read you can't see like coffee stains on the shirt or blah blah Mm -hmm. blah blah blah. there was no makeup there was no makeup on her well we saw going into the episode how she was talking to one of the people that works for her deciding so carefully about what What to to wear. wear. And ultimately, this was a very planned decision. Like you said, what she does for a living is to extort other people. And Mm -hmm. she has to know how to read them and how to use all of that. So she knew exactly what he'd be looking for. And I think the reason this episode had a different feel, every so often they give us a mini enemy for Sherlock. Yes. His big enemy throughout the whole series is obviously Moriarty, but he comes up against people who are his intellectual equal from time to time. In sections. They're equal in parts. In certain ways. But then he finds a way to break that and realizes they're only equal in that little department. He can still outsmart them eventually. Of course. In some way, which... And break them. She's a villain, but she also ends up kind of being a love. Yes. You said she extorts them, Mm. right? Do you think that, in a way, Sherlock Holmes extorts people emotionally by breaking them down within two seconds of meeting them? Oh, certainly. 
So that's a similarity in ways. Certainly, but he does and then he's done with them. Mm-hmm. She has this information forever where she can always go back and blackmail them, and it's oh, yeah. protection. The bottom line that you find out with her is that it's her armor, and it's the way she gets through life because if she didn't have that, people would be after her to kill her within five seconds. So she needs that phone and everything that comes with it. That doesn't sound like a fun life. But you're right in what you said about Sherlock. I don't think he ever gets over her, and no. that is really unlike him to hold on to that. He, he definitely had a connection to her. You see that at the end of that episode, too. Oh. And you do find out at one point when she finally gets the message decoded from Sherlock and she sends it to Moriarty that she is working with him. Moriarty uses it to foil a British counter-terror operation. Foil. And she almost succeeds in blackmailing Mycroft, but Sherlock finally cracks the password on her phone, leaving her without the protection that she needs to survive. And the episode concludes as Mycroft tells John she has been killed by a terrorist group in Pakistan. But he doesn't believe it. Not at all. (laughs) That scene is great. Talk about feeling different. Episode two, The Hounds of Baskerville. Here, Sherlock and John are contracted by Henry Knight, a man traumatized by the death of his father by a monstrous hound on Dartmoor years before. They go to investigate at this place, Dewar's Hollow. From the very beginning, it just, it seems more like a classic mystery story. Yeah. With an element of horror. There's like Mm -hmm. this fear of this great beast out there in the woods somewhere. Can I say this episode reminded me a lot of Leap Year? Just (laughs) setting-wise. setting-wise. Right. And there's a part of me that really wants to live somewhere like that. It looked beautiful. It's very slow. Rustic. Yeah. Now, I don't know if I'd go there and like after a couple months be killing myself (laughs) because it's so slow, but... There's something that my body yearns for. A lot of rain, places like that, too. Oh, I don't want rain, though. But, yeah, green rolling hills. There was a very small old village-looking place, cobblestone streets. Within the episode, we find out there's something very different going on. John and Sherlock uncover a conspiracy where one of the scientists, Dr. Franklin, is continuing the work of Hound that's H-O-U-N-D, an aborted project to create a hallucinogenic gas for military use. And that's what's been going on all this time. The person that commissioned them and anybody who walks across the path in this glen is actually being gassed. And so they think that they see a beast there. Right. But the legendary hound is actually an ordinary dog used for publicity that appears as a demonic monster because of the gas. And the person that killed Henry's father was actually Franklin, the scientist himself, wearing a red-lensed gas mask and a T-shirt bearing the logo of Hound Group. <laughs> John and Lestrade shoot the dog. Franklin attempts to flee, but he dies when he runs into a minefield. And in the final scene, Mycroft releases a confined Moriarty. So this is one of the episodes where I didn't really love the villain or, or you know, what it was about. It was so interesting, though, and I love when (laughs) he runs the whole scam on Watson, Mm -hmm. and he's running around in the laboratory. He thinks the hound is after him. Yeah, I forget about that. That was so... (laughs) Well, what I was going to say is I didn't really love the villain, quote-unquote, but I loved the storyline and, and again, Sherlock and Watson in it, so it didn't matter to me. It was a whole other adventure. Yeah. And then speaking of, you had episode three, the Reichenbach Fall, where Moriarty launches a simultaneous heist on the Tower of London, 
the Bank of England, and Pentonville Prison, using just a few lines of code that can break any security. <laughs> For these crimes, he allows himself to be captured, he's put on trial, but he gets a not guilty verdict. Over the course of the episode, he leads people to thinking that Sherlock is actually a suspect. Soils his name, makes people doubt him. The two end up meeting on a roof of the hospital, where Moriarty explains that assassins will kill John, Mrs. Hudson, and Lestrade if Sherlock does not commit suicide. And that's the whole interaction we were talking about before. One of the better episodes. This made a lot of the actors have to bust their balls on this. Mm Mm-hmm. Mariotti had to kick ass. Andrew Scott had to really flex his muscles on this one. Benedict Cumberbatch had to really flex his muscles. Mm-hmm. Martin Freeman. With his reaction. Yeah, Luis Brealey. All of them really had to go and amp it up for this one episode. Mm-hmm. Brilliant episode. Well, especially the final scene where Sherlock calls John and confesses mm. to being a fraud. That's what I mean. You don't yeah. know in the moment when you're first watching the scene that none of that is real. It's very emotional. John pleads for him to come down. Sherlock says his final goodbye and steps off the roof. Well, the conversation's real, but him killing himself is not real. Yeah, well, he's, he's having the conversation as though it's the last time they're going to talk. Yes. He's saying, I'm sorry, I'm a, I'm a fraud. I'm really not what everybody thinks I am. Oh, right. Oh, that's I'm not, not real. this great I detective. I see what you're saying. Yeah. So, you know, I think there's a part of Sherlock, maybe deep down, that those are whatever fears and insecurities that do live in a man like Sherlock. He might have touched upon it. I think we all have those fears. I mean, you go to a job interview and, and you try to say what you're good at and you, you fear that you're not that good. I mean, as a designer, I, I work really hard to design something well. But I'm afraid like, to see if I saw like, one of the greats, design mm-hmm. greats, I'd be like, Afraid to talk to them because they might see through my insecurities and realize I'm not a real designer. You know what I mean? Like, we all have those fears. Yes, but Sherlock is not like your average person. No. And the one thing he is completely confident in is his intellect, and he's using that. But you're forgetting his brother. Yes. Who brings that fear in yes, Sherlock. that's true. Because there's always that one person or persons that are better than you at whatever yeah, you push put those yourself buttons. through. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and Moriarty certainly did as well. So again, we'll just say that Moriarty killed himself in this episode and we leave off the season not knowing what happened to Sherlock. When we return in 2013, it's for a prequel episode. Christmas. To season three. It's not actually part of it. It, Yeah, people called it a Christmas Christmas special. It's actually listed as a prequel episode. Many happy returns. And here, a series of unconnected crimes stretch from Tibet to India to Germany. Sherlock has been gone for two years, but some are not quite convinced he is dead. Anderson believes Sherlock is still alive after the Reichenbach fall, confides this in Lestrade, and now we see all of the different theories as to what could have happened to Sherlock and how Mm -hmm. he could have survived. But we never find out if any of them are true, and it all remains a great mystery. There is so much we could talk about there. I know that that was an episode of great controversy. Either it was people's favorite and they loved it to death or they hated it because there was no real resolution and all of the fan theories completely blew away whatever the actual ending could have been to what happened to Sherlock. But I think it was genius of them to know that and thus leave it unsolved. They also put in some of the fan theories into it. Yes. Which was genius. Yes, amazing. (laughs) 
But we got to move on because we still have Series 3, which came out in 2014 and revolved around Sherlock's return and its effect on his relationship with Watson, as well as the introduction of Mary and the new villain, Charles Augustus Magnuson. Episode 1 was The Empty Hearse. Two years after his reported Reichenbach fall demise, Sherlock, who has been cleared of all charges, returns with Mycroft's help to London, which is under threat of a terrorist attack. The big part of this was revealing to John that he actually was alive, John's reaction to that, and John's new girlfriend, Mary. I'm holding back everything I want to say. Keep going. Well, I know that your favorite moment there was when Watson actually saw that Sherlock was alive. I say no more. Episode two, The Sign of Three, is where John and Mary's wedding day. And Sherlock is daunted by the task of delivering a best man speech and going through all of his trying to figure that out, as well as the Mayfly Man and uncovering that mystery. The end of that episode reveals that Mary is pregnant. And episode three was his last vow. Stolen letters lead Sherlock into conflict with Charles Augustus Magnuson, the Napoleon of blackmail, who knows the personal weakness of every person of importance in the Western world. During the investigation, Sherlock is shot and nearly killed by Mary, and we find out her background. You know that house that they went and saw, Charles blah, 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 blah. Magnuson, yep. That's actually owned by a, a multimillionaire, mm-hmm. but they don't live there because his wife thinks it's too grandiose. Oh, So it's like an empty, boy. rich mansion. Wow, cool that, that they got to film there. Yeah, I got this great mansion, but, you know, Christina thinks it's too grandiose. So we just, you know, it's there. (laughs) The end of this episode is to protect John, Mary, and their child, Sherlock kills Magnuson in front of Mycroft and a bunch of other witnesses and is thus sent off on a suicidal assignment overseas, but brought back almost immediately because of a video that's broadcast all over London with Moriarty's face asking, did you miss me? Hmm. There's one final episode to cover, and that was the special 2016 Christmas Christmas. special. Well, it was January 1st, but they call it Christmas. Right. And this was the one that won a bunch of awards, The Abominable Bride, where Sherlock enters his mind palace to solve a case from Victorian times about a bride shooting herself and rising from the grave to kill her husband. If he can solve the murder, it might lead him to how Moriarty has risen. And his conclusion is that Moriarty is dead, but back. What does that mean? <laughs> we have so much to learn. I can't wait for this season. It's only a couple of days away. As a matter of fact, happy holidays, everybody. Yes. Happy New Year. I hope 2017 is plentiful for you as well for us. Series 4 premieres January 1st, 2017. Again, that's a couple of days away. Three consecutive Sundays at 8.30 p.m. If you're in the U.S., that's on PBS. Mm-hmm. And then we will come out with our podcast two or three days later. You have to wait longer for our podcast than other podcasts because we actually do a lot of homework. We yeah, researching, researching, going to yeah. a lot of different sites, reading so we articles. We take our time. We think it's worth it. And we do know that Series 5 is in the works mm-hmm. and Cumberbatch has confirmed a return. Now, there was this big uproar during an interview that Cumberbatch said that this would most likely be the last season. Ah. And Moffat came back in anger saying he has been misquoted like oftentimes the media misquotes all of us. Hmm. Moffat was just discussing how it, it, hard it is to get all the actors back in one place, mm-hmm. but he is more than happy and willing to do another season. Hmm. 
Thank God that we have a Series 5 because we just started this goddamn podcast. <laughs> well, yes, and going back to Series 4 for a second, which is upcoming, we don't know a lot about it. Even after all of our research, it was hard to find things out. Good. <laughs> we know that there's going to be three episodes like normal, The Six Thatchers, The Lying Detective, and The Final Problem. Those are the names. We know that Series 4 will be dark. It will be a devastating emotional upheaval focused on Sherlock and John being forced to confront consequences. It features Toby Jones as a villain. Sherlock becomes a grumpy uncle to John and Mary's baby. Oh, I can see that Mm -hmm. being a distraction. In fact, we have a picture of that, which we can put some of these pictures on our Twitter, on our website. Of season four. One is of him looking at John Mary. Oh, he's not liking <laughs> that baby. baby. We found a few others. There's one with him and Mycroft. It's a great picture of the two of them. And the first one is just them all sitting around together, almost portrait style, inside of 22 Baker Street, 221 Baker Street. Now, as we both took photography in college, if you look at this photo... And it's iconic for this episode. Everyone knows it. The person in the middle is Miss Hudson. Mm-hmm. The glue. And then the people sitting is Dr. Watson and Sherlock Holmes. And Front Watson and has the baby. They're looking at us. And then we have Watson's wife, Mary, looking to our right, her left. We have... Is she looking at Mycroft? No, she's looking off into the wall. Okay. Then we have Mycroft looking down at Sherlock. Not down at him, but because he's sitting, he's looking yep. down towards him. And then we also have Molly looking at Sherlock. And we have Inspector Lestrade mm-hmm. looking annoyed and off into nowhere. It says so much in it just one image. It says so much. I wonder what's going on. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, so in addition to that, obviously, Sherlock believes his arch nemesis, Moriarty, is somehow returning. We've heard we'll get plenty of Toby Jones promising endless fun, quote-unquote. And in one of the previews, you see Mrs. Hudson yelling at Mycroft, get out of my house, you reptile. Hmm. And Molly shouting, this isn't a game. There's game again. They've said the six Thatchers will most likely be loosely based on the Doyle story, The Adventures of the Six Napoleons, which heavily features Lestrade and plaster busts of the French military leader being smashed in search of a hidden pearl. Now, real quick, if you are enjoying this podcast and if you've enjoyed our other podcasts, we have released two Patreon-exclusive episodes that we had a blast doing, Hmm. one of which was a movie review podcast for the Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. Christina and I had a great time. We broke down what each beast is, what their danger levels are, their Mm. gradings. And, oh, man, we really geeked out on that. And it was a pleasure to do. And we got um, a lot of positive input from that. Yeah, we did a lot of research and prep for that one. I think it came out pretty good. And the other one was our bonus, which we will do monthly for Patreon members which is a more laid back, more personal podcast. And we've had listeners write to us saying that they really appreciated getting to know us better. And we really enjoyed getting to know us better too, because we had to (laughs) divulge it. I guess you start to learn about yourself. If you want those and more, you can go to our Patreon page. To find that, just go to coffeeclatchcrew.com and you'll see on there, big orange Patreon. And you can check out our site as well. I think you'll dig everything we have going. 
It's worth it. Give it a try. Give it one month try. I really think you're going to enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, if you don't like it, you can always stop, but I am pretty confident once you get it, you'll want to continue. As Jason said, every month you've got that bonus podcast, lots of materials. It's going to be about 45 minutes to an hour once a month. And we have the movie podcast, a new movie, something that's fun that we think you'd be into every month, what's out at the theaters currently, a lot of research. Again, I think they're coming out really good so far, plus there's some other fun stuff. For now, back over to Sherlock. That's pretty much everything we know from series one through three and the upcoming series four. We won't have to wait long to find out what's in store for us with episode one, The Six Thatchers. But if you need more in the meantime, there's other stuff out there that you can look into. There's a few other tie-in websites that are kind of interesting. The BBC has produced several, written by Joseph Lidster, which tie into the show by creating a website or a blog mentioned within the series. Number one, you have The Science of Deduction, which appears to be Sherlock's own personal site. He talks about a lot of different things there. There's a link, one of the links on there is, Could You Solve a Crime Like Sherlock? And it describes the science of deduction behind forensics and criminology, everything that goes into what Sherlock does. Just a little snippet of that talks about how Holmes was quick to adopt some of the field's innovative methods of forensic science, which is the analysis of physical evidence to link a suspect to a crime. He used fingerprints to crack the case in Sign of Four, published in 1890. It was more than a decade before Scotland Yard adopted that practice in 1901. He also uses the criminological field of offender profiling, an investigative tool which attempts to prevent and solve crimes by understanding what makes others tick. The biggest part of all of that is deductive reasoning. So he says real deduction boils down to two things, knowledge and a sense of awareness. And the biggest thing he does is just pay attention to everything around him. Hmm. So there's a lot of fun stuff like that on there, kind of getting into his mind and figuring out what makes Sherlock tick. Then, as we stated before, you have the personal blog of John Watson. We see that on the show, him writing about each case that they go through, and you can actually read some of his blogs on there. And finally, you have Molly Hooper's diary. Let's do a couple more fun facts. This is my favorite part. (laughs) Speedy's Cafe, the sandwich emporium frequented by Holmes and Watson in the series, is a real cafe on Gower Street near Houston. Huh. The BBC stand-in for 221B... Baker Street. In the Sherlock pilot, it was run by Una Stubbs' character and named Mrs. Hudson's Snack and Sarnies. Oh, wow. (laughs) But that idea was swiftly dropped, so that didn't come to fruition. The fans who flock there from all over the world can now enjoy specially created Sherlock-themed snacks. So that's one of the places I would take you or force you to go. It wouldn't be forced. You'd be doing it No, I would love that. They have a Sherlock wrap. It's chicken, bacon, cheddar cheese, lettuce, peppers, red onion, cucumber, chili sauce. Oh, I would get that. Oh, my goodness. I would love that. Or the Watson wrap. Roasted vegetables, spinach, tomatoes, spring onion, brie, sour cream. Mmm. That's not my style. Brie and sour cream, huh? Mmm. And apparently there's a Moriarty sub reportedly in the works. That sounds (laughs) dangerous. And you know what? I brought this up earlier. Let's go into it more deeply. Despite China's best efforts, Sherlock isn't gay. As amply demonstrated by the kisses in season three's first episode, The Empty Hearse, Stephen Moffat and Mark Gaddis have always enjoyed flirting with the ambiguity of Sherlock's sexuality. Everyone recruited him to their perspective. 
their interpretation, Benedict Cumberbatch once said when asked about Holmes' sex life. I've had asexuals come up to me and thank me for representing asexuals, but they're mistaken. According to Moffat, there's no indication to the original stories that Holmes was asexual or gay, he told The Guardian, none of which has stopped millions of Chinese fans from adopting Sherlock as a gay icon. With a vast archive of literature dedicated to his romantic exploits with Watson, there's a 39-chapter romance novel, a much-viewed video supercut of, of Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman exchanging longing looks set in, to slushy music, <laughs> all of which may seem like fairly standard fan fiction fare until you remember that in China, writing such filth is a crime punishable with a lengthy jail term. Oh, boy. Crazy. Well, one about Sherlock. We were speaking before, and we've referred to him very frequently as a sociopath because that is, in fact, how he refers to himself in the series. And in a study in Pink, Anderson flippantly calls Holmes a psychopath. Do your research, Anderson, he says in reply. I'm a high-functioning sociopath. Not true, according to psychologist Maria Konikova, who convincingly argues that Sherlock is altogether too loving empathic and aware of his own faults to be considered a sociopath. Mm, I don't know if I agree with that, Mm. but um, they say he may be autistic. Late last year, autism charity, the National Autistic Society, cited Sherlock's single-mindedness, inability to understand the social norms such as sarcasm, and incredible feats of recall as evidence that he might be autistic. This despite Watson making a direct reference to his friends Asperger's in The Hounds of Baskerville. I mean, I agree with that. He definitely has some of those aspects that you would look for, like the single-mindedness and the not getting the social norms thing. And he has certain qualities that fall under a sociopath. I wouldn't categorize him as either. I would just say he has traits of both of them and also other things. But as clearly painted within every rendition of every Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes is something else altogether. I don't think you can label him or or quantify him. Lastly, this is awesome. Sherlock's staircase would please purists. Hmm. In Conan Doyle's A Scandal in Belgravia, Sherlock asks Watson how many steps lead up to their quarters at 221B Baker Street. Watson hasn't a clue. I know there are 17 steps because I have both seen and observed, Holmes tells him. Because Sherlock fans are similarly observant, There are 17 steps leading to the first floor of the Sherlock Holmes Museum and another 17 between the hall and front room on the Cardiff set of Sherlock. Oh, wow. 17. Now I'm going to want to watch and count. Yeah. (laughs) That's like the thing so that you don't all forget we're supposed to be looking on the end credits for those letters in red. Yes. See if we can spell out the number. Now, I don't know if they do that every episode or if they're going to continue with series four, but I am definitely on the lookout. Well, that wraps up all the information we had for the prequel. Oh, this was fun. I'm such a Sherlock nerd. I I love this shit. Wait for the episode. We will, of course, have more information that we will sprinkle throughout our episodes. And as stated before, the outline will be a little bit different when we do the episode reviews, more like our old episode reviews. And that means we are going to be giving our rating and our most valuable person for each episode. So every episode, if you want to write in, And give us your rating or your most valuable person for that episode. We would love to hear it and talk about it on the podcast. Speaking of which, I actually almost forgot. My favorite episode so far is season three, episode three, The Sign of Three. (laughs) 
Wow. And not just because I'm a designer and I love the power of threes. Okay, I actually cheated. It's episode two because we had that pre-episode. So it's not episode oh, three. I so cheated a little bit. it's not really episode three. So it's three. season three, episode two, the okay. sign of three. Gotcha. It's the wedding speech. It's the wedding episode. The wedding episode. Yeah, it was a perfect mixture of comedy, suspense, Sherlockiness, new coin phrase for Coffee Clatch Crew, <laughs> Sherlockiness, and the mystery. It had it all combined. It made us laugh the whole time. It made us, uh, it, it gave us every emotion that we wanted to. And at that point, we had grown to love Benedict Cumberbatch's Sherlock Holmes, that he was like displaying the quirks that you could only appreciate if you were well aware of Sherlock. I agree with you on the whole. That was my favorite episode as well. I liked everything about it, except I didn't think the actual mystery of what was going on was that well-developed because they had to spend so much time on other things that mm-hmm. it felt very rushed through figuring out what actually happened. True. That happens, some, uh, that happens on many occasions with Sherlock. And I did state before, like, it, doesn't, it almost doesn't matter because of how great the acting is and how great the things that happen in between are. So it doesn't really matter. Yeah, a lot of times it doesn't. But as far as mystery-wise, I think it was episode one that uncovering the crime, I actually liked the poisonous pill. Yeah. One for the mystery itself. I thought that was the most interesting. For favorite moments, I think you and I would both say the moment where John figures out that Sherlock is alive, that whole scene in the restaurant. Series three, episode one, many happy returns. (laughs) What about when Sherlock first comes in and he's painting the mustache? on himself and he's got the menu he's going through all these great lengths and of course John doesn't Uh, even realize at first absolutely the juxtaposition between the comedy of Sherlock and his mustache and the accent trying to surprise Watson that was great but then right after that we get oh and the fact that Watson was just too enamored with the fact that he was going to propose that he didn't even see it didn't even notice and then that I juxtaposed with the emotional scene of Watson realizing it's Sherlock. That was just amazing. So that was downright emotional, but then immediately after that you have the humor because then Watson punches him in the face and they're going through the whole thing with Sherlock explaining to him what happened and Watson continuing to punch him in the face. Oh my goodness. And them continuing to get thrown out of one restaurant after the next <laughs> until they wind up in the deli. Every restaurant was like lesser quality yes. each time. Uh, but right up there with that moment is the episode where they get drunk together and they're trying to solve the crime. Oh, yes. (laughs) Oh, yes. I almost forgot. Sherlock's pretending to investigate the rug at the woman's house and he just passes out face first into her carpet. I love that. That was one of the great moments as well. I can't believe I almost forgot to bring that shit up. There was lots to remember. If you have a favorite episode or moment from series one through three, please feel free to write in and tell us what it was. Write into us on our website. We have a contact page or just email us contact at coffeeclatchcrew.com or Twitter at CKC podcast, Facebook, Coffee Clatch Crew. Get a hold of us. Follow us. You're really going to enjoy this ride. We want to welcome all the new listeners. I hope you, you dug it and welcome back. All of our Clatchers, and we know we missed you, and we got your messages that you missed us, so we are back. I will also put this challenge out to you before we do our next episode, which is going to be episode one review. If you've been listening, we do our most valuable person for each episode, and for Westworld, that was MVB, most valuable being. 
We need a new category now that we're going into Sherlock, and I haven't decided what our anagram is going to be yet. MV something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, most valuable something. If you have any thoughts, please put them out there, preferably on Twitter, just real short. If there is a winning one, we will use it for the remainder of the season. Don't forget to check out our Patreon page. Any little bit helps us, and we really do appreciate it. Yes, and that includes if you are not able to do the Patreon subscription, which we hope you can, but we know that that's not feasible for everybody. On our website, coffeeclatchcrew.com, there is also a donate button where you can just do a one-time only donation, anything as low as $1. Yeah. It all helps us. We appreciate it all, so just keep that in mind. But as always, the regular reviews will be free, so we will see you for the rest of this Sherlock season, starting off with episode one, The Six Thatchers. Until next episode, this round's on me. This round is on me! Please hang up and try again.